Today's episode is sponsored by Itential. Itential is network and cloud automation. The Itential platform makes it easy for you to gain insight into your entire network infrastructure. Bring your network into compliance through remediation, automatically prevent non-compliant changes from making their way into the network, gain the confidence you need to automate your network safely. Know your network, automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. A quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, just go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship, and you can get all the details. If you got something cool working with IPv6, you know, we really want to hear about it. So we'd love to have you on the show. Give us a shout out and sort of give us the the inside thing of what's cool. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host, Scott Hogue. Tom is out today. But uh, we're going to be talking about IPv6 and the management plane with our guests, Chris Cummings and Nick Baraglio. And uh, let's just jump in and start off with some questions, you guys. Uh, well, welcome to the show. Nick, welcome back. And Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. Happy to be here. Cool. You cool. know, I, I got to say, I would love it if you would say, instead of, you know, give us a ring. I can't I can't remember your exact wording, but you said, give us a buzz. I mean, come on. Give us a buzz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably should change that up. Well, hey, I mean, let's dive in and sort of talk about management and, and specifically the management plane because we've got management, we've typically got control plane, we've typically got data plane. And we want to talk about IPv6 and the management plane and sort of there's some specific sort of unique challenges around IPv6 when working with the management plane. Maybe you guys can sort of talk about your experience and, and some of the things you run into around that. Yeah, so I think a little bit of history, you know, there's, there's a lot of advantage to running single stack when it comes to critical infrastructure. And given, you know, IPv4 is functionally legacy, it makes sense to, to, to think about v6 as, you know, your, your single stack in that space. So when you start really looking at how to do that, it sounds, it sounds very simple when you say it, but like, you know, most things in IT, I think the answer is it depends. Um, so, you know, when you, when you set out to build a management plane, that exists solely on IPv6, you have to think about a lot of things that you probably didn't think about when you were doing it dual stacked or even IPv4. And, and that's sort of the journey, I think, that we that we have been on in, in doing this for a production, a large production network. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. You know, there's a lot of things that are different between what a vendor supports on v4 and what a vendor supports on v6 so if you buy a device and on the data sheet it says hey this works with ipv6 and you know you put it in your lab you test it out you had a v6 address it works but then the rub really comes when you turn off v4 because there's a lot of things that maybe kind of rely on <laughs> just the assumption that v4 is gonna be there because of course it is you're building a network so i think a lot of vendors just haven't tested all the code paths that exist for an IPv6 only deployment. And so you end up seeing things like, oh, maybe NTP doesn't let you save these settings without V4. You know, that's kind of the, the stuff mm -hmm. that I've seen a lot where, you know, especially devices that are GUI based, you know, there's some validation that these IPv4 fields have to be filled in and you'll just try to, you know, not put anything there and it'll be like, hey, sorry, you got to have a default gateway. Where's right. your 000 slash zero? Yeah. Stuff like that. 
I think we've seen products that use DHCP for IPv4 to get an option that then bootstraps them, you know, the firmware update, the, you know, getting the device booted up. There's still some dependency on DHCP for IPv4 or uh, authentication only occurs over V4 transport, not over V6, or there's some administrative function, or you can only get to the web UI over V4 or the RESTful API is only V4, you know, little things like that. Yeah, I think the the biggest lesson learned, and this is important in all of IPv6, um, it doesn't matter if you're dual stacking or single stacking, is it needs to be well-defined what you mean by IPv6 support. And to take it one step further, you have to very clearly define what you mean by IPv6 only, because that's going to be directly related to what you define as IPv6 support. So being able to say my widget supports IPv6 is very easy because there's no real official definition of what that actually means, you know, on per, per device. I mean, there's some loose guidelines and I think NIST has some documents and things like that, but if I say that for one thing, let's say a console server, is that's probably going to have a different definition for, let's say, a PDU, right? And another thing that you have to think about is where, where are these devices and these software platforms going to exist? Are they going to all exist in a, a single building? Is this going to be an enterprise or maybe an, an extended enterprise that has its own fiber and it's maybe a campus area? You know, you can walk across it if you need to, or is this going to be a national footprint or an international footprint? Because that that also changes how you think about things, because if something doesn't work, you have to be able to get to it. And, you know, so you need that management protocol, whatever it is, you know, SSH or web interface or whatever needs absolutely needs to work. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's one of the caveats of doing dual stack is that. I can't tell you how many times in my career I've had to use link local to get into something because I screwed it up and it's halfway across a country or it's halfway across a state uh -huh. or whatever, or I'll fall back. I'll screw up V4 and I will move to V6 and V6 works fine. So, you know, the, the advantage of having those two lanes is, is gone essentially. I mean, link local is obviously still going to work, but you know, the, the, the two lane highway of dual stack is, is gone. And, you know, as much as, you know, engineers may say, well, I don't make mistakes, right? Like I, first of all, I will call that out as very likely untrue or, you know, you you're just not trying. Career? <laughs> <laughs> everybody, everybody makes mistakes. And so you have uh -huh. to be prepared and you have to think about those things, yeah. you know, as you're, as you're sort of building out what your architecture is going to look like. Yeah, so interesting enough, sometimes when I'm configuring things dual protocol in the management plane, I'll use V4 to connect to a device that it's administrative interface. If I mess with IPv6, I'm not shooting myself in the foot. Or I'll go in over the V6 management plane access and mess with something before, and I know I'm not shooting myself in the foot. So I sometimes intentionally will use one address family when I'm working on the other address family. Oh, absolutely. That's a great technique. Yeah, for mm -hmm. labs and stuff like that, right, Scott? That's mm -hmm. that's a real common thing. Well, I mean, maybe maybe back to Nick's original point, and, and Chris made a comment about this too, is 
uh, from a from a feature and functionality basis, it, it's not worth. It's worth mentioning for uh, for for the audience that when you ask that question about V6 support, you need to sort of be aware of: Are you asking about data plane, control plane, management plane? Uh, this show we're talking about management, but the reality is is that it may be a different answer in each one of those, or 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 a very frustrating answer that says you know it depends on how you use our product, <laughs> which is even worse. But whatever, that's that's a reality. Sometimes that and happens. In a, and in enterprise networks, I think it blurs because we're often managing devices in band. Yes, yeah. But yes. in in service provider scale networks or the ones you know Nick and Chris work on. They probably have a real management out of band, separate infrastructure for that yeah. purpose. Yeah. And the, the other thing too, when you're talking about, you know, okay, you're talking to the vendor and saying you support IPv6, what does that mean? The other thing is you, you got to really think through how are you assigning your v6 addresses? One example, you know, that I can give is maybe it supports v6, but sometimes Maybe it doesn't support statically assigning V6. Maybe it only supports Slack. Mm -hmm. And I, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, oh, not only does it only support Slack, it only supports it with a privacy extension. So for a device that you always have to be able to log into and you can't predict what the IP is going to be, uh, yeah. that really causes some problems. And, you know, it's one of those things that you don't really see when you're doing V4 you know, or dual stack because it's just kind of masked from you when the IP6 is broken because they, you know, it was all designed to work that way. Yeah, I've had to do that. Like, look at the device. Then I go and look at the neighbor cache of other devices on the same network, trying to figure out what its address <laughs> is to bootstrap to try and get to it. Like, what was its MAC address? Did it, <laughs> yeah. right. where is it in my neighbor cache to try and find its V6 address? Yeah, that's that's very true. And I think that really comes down to, understanding what you mean by v6 support and v6 only support because you can say the vendor can clearly say we support ipv6 because they do they just do it in a very limited way or maybe and maybe it's just because they don't have enough experience with the protocol to make good decisions about what they need to support i think that's often uh, the case for many uh, to give them a little bit of grace around some of that of, of just like there's not enough operational information for them to know that you know only supporting Slack with with privacy is probably not the best strategy. While yes, it works functionally for V6, it may not be the best strategy for for the purpose. They may not be getting good user stories yeah. <laughs> for their uh, product development. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and 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 by and large, that is the reason. Because a lot of times, I think it would be maybe not surprising to us, but probably surprising to someone who hasn't done a lot of V6, that a lot of the vendors don't have a very robust lab to test V6 out in. They may not have anything at all. They may, you know, implement the protocol, make sure, you know, neighbor discovery works, and then they're done uh, because they don't actively have customers asking for these things, which I know is this excuse that everyone's used for 15 years. But <laughs> largely that's not the case any longer. So being able to engage your vendors as a partnership and not just a, you know, which is, you know, an often quoted term is they're the throat to choke, you know, approach it like a partnership and say, hey, I need this particular functionality. I'm willing to work with you and do the testing to make it happen. Um, that'll take you pretty far. I mean, obviously you have to have the resources to do it, but 
our experience has been that that is almost universally welcomed. Yeah, and that's what I mean by like, you know, the code paths that you're going to run through doing V6 only on the management plane are just less traveled, right? There's not as many users doing it to report bugs, to complain that, hey, I want a static V6 address. Come on, guys. You know, that kind of thing is just not going to happen as much. And that's like you said, Scott, there's not going to be as many user stories really mm -hmm. saying, as a user, I want this so that I can yeah. do that. Well, I've got a question for you then, Chris, is is in, in that same vein, I, I think it's very interesting because there's probably not as many design and operational principles. Maybe this is something, you know, Scott can jump in on too. But like on management, you know, often on management networks that I've worked on in the past on the V4 side, they try and, you know, if it's a site, they're like, oh, we're just going to run one big flat network and put everything in the same subnet because there's it is an out-of-band, you know, management network. We don't want to have the complications around some routing stuff. We're just going to stick a, you know, firewall and a VPN in front and and hand out addresses and, and and even the VPN addresses end up being in the same address space and things like that. So it becomes very simple. Are, are there principles that you guys think about in terms of management for V6 that, that is structurally different than V4 that is maybe like, oh, no RAs versus what we might do in the, in the data plane, right? Or are there other things that you guys think about that way? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, especially like, you know, no RAs. Uh, that's kind of an interesting point because maybe you don't want that to be used in that way on your management network. You just want it to be very dumb and simple, right? Right. Yeah, I, 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 and it always, like everything, like what Nick mentioned earlier, right? It depends, but but mm -hmm. I, I imagine you guys have gone through some some serious head-scratching and consideration about some of that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, I think, you know, the going back to that example of, you know, only accepting Slack addresses, right? We weren't we weren't planning on running Slack on you know maybe these interfaces because you know most of the time your management network is all static because you need to know how to get to it mm -hmm. and so that was something that once we started actually deploying oh I guess we do have to turn this on and now you're kind of hoping well does my upstream router support you know everything that I need in this regard and all of that fun stuff yeah. so yeah there's a lot of considerations there. It, it might look like a data center in that. It's everything is very statically addressed mm -hmm. and you could use the RA, but only with the L flag, A, M and O are all off. Yeah. And there's different, there's different considerations there too, because just like what Chris said, if, if you end up having to turn on Slack, it's like, well, I statically configured all of these, but how are my OSs going to behave? Are some of those devices going to suddenly pick up an additional address in addition to the mm -hmm. one that I statically configured? <laughs> yeah. That's a very real operational problem especially if you want to have very tight control over source addressing and source traffic. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to do those things and, and or just know, logging and event correlation, right? For, yes. for, for management network, you want to know who's logging in and why. Right? Mm -hmm. so, well, and so. you want to know what's sourcing traffic, mm -hmm. right? For your, for your correlation of transit traffic out of, let's say a management plane network that's isolated, you know, it's only supposed to talk certain things. You want to know exactly what's sourcing that traffic when you start to have to deal with privacy addressing and multiple uh, addresses per interface, which is normal V6 behavior, except you don't want it in this case. You know, you have to be able to account for that in yeah. one way or another. And sometimes that means, you know, it, it can potentially mean ugliness, like mm -hmm. scraping neighbor tables and, you know, the like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah not everybody's security team is going to be okay with, yeah, just, we're going to allow this slash 64 to log into devices. You know, maybe they're going to want it broken down into slash 128s. You know, some some departments do have the requirement that you can only allow 
128s through your firewall rules. And how do you do that when it's all, yeah, what am I going to put uh, a, a slash 64s worth of 128s into my firewall rules? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, like one of the great things about IPv6 is the abundance of address space. And so you could break out a whole really nice, clean block of infrastructure address space to use for this isolated management plane. But you could also use two IPv6 addresses. You could use two different blocks. One block for management plane things that still need to go fetch a firmware update from the vendor or phone home. But then use a different, you know, put two addresses on management plane interfaces where you would have then another block that is just the secret squirrel network that is just separate and never leaves, you know, the enterprise yeah, is completely, route. yeah, completely separate. A crazy idea I have, and I'm not advocating as this is a, what people should do necessarily, but you could use, you could use ULA, okay? <laughs> you could use ULA and global and put both addresses on a device and have the global used for things, yeah, firmware updates, Windows update, you know, fetching repos, you know, out on the internet. But use the ULA space for a private communication kind of add a band. I don't know. What do you guys think? Am I crazy? It's really interesting. I've literally done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <I'm> not... <laughs> it's a lot easier to lock it down because you don't have to worry about it leaking out. And, you know, that's one of the things I think people who are new to V6 kind of get, you know, a little spooked by is, whoa, you mean, you know, especially people who are newer and don't remember, you know, what it was like when V4 worked the way it was supposed to within. <laughs> you know, they get a little spooked by, oh, Anything can access my stuff. I have mm. to have firewall rules for this. Nat's not my firewall. Oh, no. Mm. Oh, no. I'm getting scared. <laughs> and yeah, that's a really interesting use case for that. Now, I, I'm going to answer Scott, Scott's question of like, am I crazy? Because Nick said, yes, he agreed. Therefore, <laughs> yes, I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, no, I said I've done it. I didn't say I agreed. <laughs> didn't say it was operationally stable. <laughs> it does work. I mean, and, and that's actually, I had never used ULA ever. Mm -hmm. um, that was the, first use case I thought mm. of for it. Yeah. Uh, and it and it largely worked. So basically what you can do is, you know, you say you create a slash 64, whatever it is, mm -hmm. that's all of your loopback addresses or whatever you're going to source external connectivity from. That allows you to make a nice container in a in a in an ACL or a firewall rule that says this is allowed right now. Mm. And anything that's numbered out of this, I can I can source things from it. But I also need to have internal connectivity. And I probably don't want that external connectivity all the time. So I can disable that rule whenever no one's doing updates or mm -hmm. I can, you know, make it inbound, denied, outbound, accepted, that kind of thing. That was the whole reason I did it. And actually, that was one of the ways I figured out some of the nuances with ULA that I didn't really understand back then, you know, the depreferencing and things like that. I've done that before where I'll have a management network and... I'll remove the default route. And then when I need to patch, I'll add back in the default route or it's programmatically. And then I can reach oh, out to the sneaky. internet. Otherwise it's, otherwise it's not, it doesn't have a internet access, you know, that's or, or I, or in <laughs> AWS, <laughs> AWS parlance, you know, I delete the NAT gateway. Right. And then I build the NAT gateway only when I need it or attach it only to the VPC when patching needs to take place. Otherwise, there's no NAT gateway. It's isolated. 
I think that really highlights one of the benefits of, you know, why you might want to use V6 only or at least V6 dual stack um, mm -hmm. on your network is that the vast abundance of IPv6 space really allows you to do some solid address planning in ways that you cannot do, especially, you know, if you're an organization who uses public addressing for everything because you have large blocks of IPv4 public addressing, you know, your your address plan, especially if it's from the 90s, you know, <laughs> your, your, if your blocks are from the 90s, it's, it's kind of sprawled over the years, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, V6 allows you to build really clean supernets um, that you can use for your firewall rules. Uh, of course, there's a book about IPv6 address planning that somebody wrote. I've, I've heard it's really good. <laughs> it's really good, yes. <laughs> but, you know, obviously, like, that's one of the huge benefits of v6 in general. But really, in your management networks, where you're trying to make sure that it's very secure, because, you know, when you hand over, we've seen it time and time again, where there's a vulnerability announced in some vendor's uh management page like a vCenter or you know a PDU or a UPS or whatever right and people are getting pwned by it all the time because mm -hmm. their management's exposed it's a lot easier to have clean well understandable rules with v6 than it is with v4 yeah for sure um the the whole basis of v6 hierarchical addressing is uh you know it can't really be understated. And the ability to sort of change things easily when you need to is also one of those little value adds that not a lot of folks think of. And I've been places where, you know, we're doing like, oh, this management at work, we're probably only going to have X number of switches. So we'll do a slash 29. I think that should go. <laughs> <laughs> You're one nibble off. Oh, yeah, no. yeah. And then you add up, you know, oh, this this department expanded and now my management network over here is totally in trouble because I don't have space and I got to renumber my management, which is totally easy and fun because everybody's using DNS so they don't get tied to those, uh, they don't get tied to those addresses at all, do they? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, you have, but in V6, you have a slash 64 and that's it. And you put your hosts in there and your subnets are now back to the way God intended, which is... <laughs> you know a logical purpose versus uh how many hosts have to fit into it so is, is that bob hinden or stephen daring that is which one <laughs> yeah, but, you know i could get into the theology of pantheism but <laughs> <laughs> well uh, so here's a question for the two of you then uh for, uh for for those that have gone through address planning you know and since tom's not here i'll, th I'll throw it to you too you know, there's options within management networks. So when you're building large topologies, multiple sites, multiple 32s, for instance, or multiple 36s, and you're interconnecting everything, I think what's what's sort of unique about V6 is you have enough address space where, let's say you're assigning 48s for a particular campus or site. You could carve out a management network that's entirely separate out of a 48, for instance, and provide that as a management overlay. You could also provide management networks that are within the contain 48 for that particular site. You could do a manage, management network that's associated with just the backbone, right? So how do you guys think about it? Do you like to keep your management space contiguous within its own own sort of address space and you overlay it across all your networks? Do you like to contain your management address space within the networks that you operate and, and make it part of the data forwarding plane for, for that stuff? Or how do you guys think about that sort of stuff? And any, any, any thoughts around how you guys have designed and done that work? So I am a fan of having compartmentalization as much as possible. Now, I 
realize personally that that's going to be hard to do for a lot of organizations, especially if you have a slash 32 and you say, go and ask for another allocation that's outside of that slash 32 that, you know, is, you know, in addition to what you already have, you have to be able to justify utilization of the 32, making the second one a little bit harder to get. I like the, I like the idea of announcing that as a completely isolated network, because let's be honest, in a very, very large geographically diverse network, you're really running multiple networks at the same time, especially if you're running, let's say, layer one up, right? You have whatever the optical network runs, you know, the optical platform, which it has its own, you know, even if you don't see it, the shelves are running an IGP between them. You know, there's a there's an isolated air-gapped network that that those exist on. So that's one network that you have to think about. And the service it provides is, you know, waves. Then you have the data plane network, right? The packet network that's probably compartmentalized in and of itself, right? Because it's very likely going to be overlays and, and and those kind of things. Then you have the management network. And the management network consists of another isolated in in a way you know uh, not air gapped because it has to be able to talk to the data plane but you've got this other network that's a compartment that is going to need external access in the form of out of band connectivity and then it needs to be able to talk to all the network elements in one way or another uh you know management interfaces serial interfaces those kind of things and 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 then also talk to the control systems so you have to have it configured so that it can talk to power management and you know all all of the ancillary pieces that you have for a network of that type i very much like the idea of being able to say this is totally isolated i can use a term from the 90s here you know i can put a series of choke routers in there that cut it off completely if i need to yeah, you can with you can withdraw the route for the management plane if you need to. I can re- withdraw the route for the management plane in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really understated and underestimated how useful and how much that leverage that gives you in the security realm as well. Yeah, not so, being able to do that is hard. Or I'm sorry, being able to actually accomplish that is hard. Is what I was trying to say there. Because there's administrative overhead along with it. But if I'm going to ask for something and I'm going to design something, I'll always go for the, you know, the Rolls Royce option first. <laughs> so I'll definitely agree with Nick there. And I'll, I'll kind of give an anecdote that the first time I ever built an IP addressing plan of any kind, I designed it to aggregate nicely based off physical locations. And then each physical location, you know, had a slash whatever, and then, you know, various slash whatever's carved out of it for various services. <laughs> um, my second IP plan that I ever did, <laughs> it turned that around, right? And yeah. made things service oriented. So I think back to that, you know, broader question of, you know, do you use a separate space for this or not, you know, I, I definitely lean towards it's great to use a separate space. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, like Nick said, you'll ask for the Rolls, Roy- Rolls Royce of, you know, maybe getting it uh, even a separate allocation. But, you know, if you can't, just, you know, carving a 48 out of your existing allocation works great um, or larger. I think, you know, I've seen 44s used uh, for all management. And then, you know, you'll have after that 44, you'll have some values that represent, you know, what kind of service it is, you know, IPMI, you know, like Nick said, your optical system, your 
your loopbacks, your, you know, your actual, maybe it's a performance monitoring system, uh, latency monitoring system, all those different systems get their own, you know, Supernet. I use the term Supernet, which I was told that day is old school, but <laughs> <laughs> we use it too. It's all good, man. Yeah. Okay, good. You know, you have that Supernet for your services. And then, you know, we have a smaller segment that represents the actual site for management. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way I like to do it personally. Because yeah. again, it, it goes back to those firewall rules. It's so much easier. <laughs> yeah. So much easier to build rules in that way. Yeah, I'm with you guys on using the separate space because you tend to think of, oh, I'm going to give a site a slash 48. So that's for things within that site. But for things that transcend the site and tie to ge- geographical, like a WAN link, where is it? It has two endpoints or yep. the cloud that transcends geography. So what is it? So things that transcend a site, I tend to, or aren't part of a site, then I tend to use a separate block for. And so if the management plane is within the site, like maybe the management is within the site, within that data center, and that's a site, is the data center, then you could use the management inside of the data center from that site's allocation. But if it's a overlay, out-of-band management network that transcends sites, then using a separate block might be preferable. And, and, and this, the only reason this comes up as a question, you guys, and this is really sort of probably down in the weeds and, and, and maybe maybe more of a fun whiteboard discussion, but uh, I've seen different different organizations take different tactics uh, around the management side of saying like, hey, we want loopback injection. And uh, should that come out of the, as Chris and Nick were sort of advocating and, and Scott too, of, of this overlay portion, so that way everything's consistent. I, I think that sort of feels more preferable to me too. And one of the reasons why is because you can always run that management network as an overlay on top of the data plane network that you're already operating in band. And so uh, to, to and, and give it multiple paths if you need to. So that becomes a, a nice feature um, or just a characteristic of, the, of how that address space would work. Um, uh, so it's, I, I definitely agree with you guys. It's, it's, it's one of those things that becomes this weird discussion because it's not really an option in the same way, I guess, in V4. At least I don't I think there's any analogy to to being able to do this in the same sort of way that I've seen. Um, I, don't, I don't know what your what your guys' opinion is about that versus V4, but I just I think there's so much more address space and flexibility in thinking about networks differently V6 behavior-wise. We paused the episode for some thinking about end-to-end automation across all your networks with sponsor Itential. I have long advocated for simplifying the network to help make automation work well, and I I have lost the battle. Your your network probably consists of physical hardware, virtualized network functions, the internet as WAN, and VPN tunnels, or direct connects, or both to multiple public clouds. So how's your automation initiative working out? Maybe not great. What if you had an automation tool to help bring order to the chaos? Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks like yours more manageable. The Itential platform offers you insight into your entire infrastructure, so you lean into Itential and it's going to help you quickly detect non-compliant devices and then target them for remediation. And, and all this works if your network devices offer a modern API or are CLI only. And the big idea here, feel in control. Be confident about what your network actually is with the Itential platform doing the heavy lifting for you. And with that baseline, you can trust that the automation processes you build with the Itential platform will deliver the network state your organization requires. 
iTensional also has a configuration manager tool, which lets you integrate configuration validation right into your automation processes. And this lets you take a step back from knowing the nuance of every networking component you're responsible for. You get operational consistency. You ask iTensional to execute the configuration task and iTensional makes sure it gets done across both your on-prem gear and cloudy virtual infrastructure. All right, so iTensional does a lot. And so maybe you're worried that iTensional is going to require 19 months of training and a team of rockstar developers to make it work. If you're thinking that you're missing a key point here, iTensional is meant to be easy to use. For instance, iTensional's low-code automation studio provides drag-and-drop network automation plus an open library of pre-built automation workflows with integrations to any IT system, end-to-end -end automation across all your networks, simplifying network automation for everyone on your team. Know your network. Automate your network. iTensional. Find out more at itensial.com slash packetpushers. That's itensial.com slash packetpushers. And now, back to today's episode. Well, one of the things I think we should probably talk about a little bit is, is moving from dual stack, which is where I think most people are at uh, in terms of, well, maybe not most people, but where most people think they're going to go is, is some sort of dual stack network. And is there any really big structural differences about dual stack versus the single stack of v6 only? Like, how do you guys think about that from, um, you know, design and, 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 and maybe control basis for, for the management side? So I think that there's a couple of things. The biggest one that's often forgotten is that when you're running v6 only, you still have to have a way for v4 management to happen for folks that say don't have IPv4 or don't have IPv6 at their home. Um, so with a lot of folks working from home and, you know, big networks often be being managed through just, you know, distributed means with people all over the world, you may not have IPv6 on your, you know, on your home internet access. I mean, you should, those ISPs should get, get with it and get that done. But the reality is, you know, a lot of smaller providers haven't done it yet. So you have to be able to account for that. That was something that popped up that I stupidly did not consider. So things like jump hosts that are dual homed and dual stacked uh, are useful. VPN appliances that have, you know, V4 on the external connection and then and probably also v6 and then you know just hand you a v6 address on the inside so you can get to all of those things those things are pretty necessary at this point in time when you when you start migrating from dual stack to um, v6 only um, and again that was something that i you know i'm a little bit ashamed to admit i did not consider and it kind of smacked me in the face and i went oh yeah why didn't i see that it was right there so that's something to think about chris did you have any yeah, other things that's a great point. And it goes the other way too. So if you have devices that need to download firmware or whatever, especially let's talk about network automation and how your workflows might use, you know, external services, cloud services to get data, you know, you're using Git or whatever, and maybe not all of those have IPv6, right? And how do you handle your management devices when they're on V6 only talking to a service that's on mm -hmm. v4 only that you don't control and that you have no ability to handle so it goes both ways yeah. you still have to have some translation mechanisms for like nick said people who don't have v6 getting in and also for services that don't have v6 that you need to get out to 
Mm-hmm. So that's another huge architectural decision that you need to, you know, kind of figure out what translation mechanism, if any, you know, you're going to use. Yeah, yeah, some products get, you know, phone home to the vendor for, you know, warranty or support. Sometimes you might get, you know, a thread intel feed from a vendor or it's, it's getting a list of block sites or reputation data, you know, or or geolocation information or something, you know, there's some other dependent third-party dependency. Yeah, that's very true. And and a big a big shining example of that is when they're trying to pull things from GitHub. You just call them out, Nick. <laughs> well, I mean, it is what it is. You know, there's a lot. It's a great service that everybody uses, but it doesn't do IPv6 yet. So, you know, you have to have a mechanism. They're not. They're by no stretch of the imagination the only ones. But those are the ones. That's the one that. I've seen most recently where it just, it doesn't have it. It doesn't exist yet. Yeah. That, that and your automated, your automated need for network automation to talk to Twitter. I know, I know that you manage all your stuff through Twitter. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you're using chat ops, <laughs> <laughs> chat ops through Twitter, <laughs> just publicly let people tweet at us and change our configs. It sounds like an awesome plan to me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I want that. I want to make that and see what happens. <laughs> make a lab that does that. That might be pretty fun actually. As a project, we get your route preferences, adding uh, <laughs> prepins and local props. Just implement RPSL over Twitter for IR data. <laughs> it be worse than when it was over fax or when it was over email. <laughs> oh, I remember the fax days very well. Well, well, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit. So we, you casually mentioned it off on the side, but you know, maybe one of the funny things to talk about is is how is management you know, this management plane, really that much more harder, difficult or not difficult versus control and data plane. And maybe a good example is like, would you actually sign your routes for the management side versus maybe what you're doing on your data plane side, right? And is that something that you would actually consider doing? Or are there other operational considerations around route reflectors, around, you know, overlay networks that might be different around management plane versus data control plane stuff? I'll go back to that uh, statement about, you know, you're traversing different code paths than most people. <laughs> and so on the data plane, V6 is traversed much more heavily than management plane, uh, just in my experience, because the management networks are often the shoemaker's children, so to speak, uh, of, an, of a network, right? And to, I guess, explain that for folks who I, I shouldn't just use, <laughs> use uh, idioms, but, you know, Often those are neglected and don't always have before, right? Or their or their last generation equipment. It's like the thing that we used before. We upgraded our network and we're going to use the old stuff to run our management plane network. Uh, yeah, right? that twenty nine sixty in the management that twenty five oh one that's been working in the closet for the last thirty years. Like it's awesome. We can use that twenty five fourteen with the two octal cables. My twenty five eleven all the access to my to my management. <laughs> With an uptime of 10 years. <laughs> that Sun Ultra Spark 5 that, that is sitting in the closet will totally work. So, IPX, Sun IPX. <laughs> well, I had a whole bunch of those. <laughs> I mean, that's what vendors usually refer to when they mean they have IPv6 support, right? I mean, like, I just management of devices is typically an afterthought. That's why. CLIs are so bad on network gear sometimes is because it's not as important as it being able to push packets. Like that's where all the focus is, right? And so, you know, really, I think that 
running IPv6 in the control plane, or I'm sorry, in the data plane is much, much easier uh, because it's a lot easier to yell at your vendor for that. Whereas I think, I don't know, maybe I'm pontificating, but as an industry, I think we've kind of gotten used to cruddy management interfaces for devices. And so we don't get surprised versus the data plane. That's what you bought it for. And that's what it's going to do. And you can really choke that throat if it doesn't do it. Whereas with the management plane, a lot of times they'll say you're using it wrong or whatever. <laughs> yeah. We've put up with SNMP for decades. Right? <laughs> you're using it. Oh you're using it wrong, which the, which translates to you're using it. What are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Manage, management plane. No, no, no. That's that's just a security vulnerability. Just please turn all that off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I I think that what Chris said is pretty spot on. And then and, and I wanted to make a couple other comments. You know, when you're talking about control plane. You're talking about you know the, the protocols that are running on the elements that are you know making the packets move around in the directions that you want them to go. I think we're pretty close to being able to run v6 only on on most of the most of the big carrier grade gear. I can't speak to enterprise grade stuff, you know, but you need to be able to have you know LDPv6 and you know. ISIS that you know can can run without IPv4 enabled at all, but then you also have to take into account this isn't really IPv4, but things that are 32-bit addresses. There are things that look like 32-bit addresses that are really just pointers like router IDs, router ID, things like yeah. that. You know, so you you have to be able to explain those to auditors as well. Like that's not actually an IP address; it just looks like one. For legacy reasons, you can't get to it. It's not announced anywhere, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's mo mostly solved, you know, for, it's an, for the... It's an area ID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, the uh, uh, that's a default route. No, no, that's area zero. <laughs> um, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the control plane, I think, is is mostly solved um, in that space. Again, I, I don't know about the enterprise level gear uh so i can't speak to that i i'm guessing it's probably a little behind uh in that space but then when you're talking about the data plane you know as much as i want to say it i don't think it's accurate to say running v6 only in the data plane is any is going to happen in in our careers because there's always going to be a need to transit legacy ip to talk to the things that just won't do it so you're going to have to have some mechanism for moving around V4. V moving around V6 is pretty much solved. I mean, every every cell phone provider and and most of the major broadband providers around the world already are doing this. Um, it's just a matter of when can you turn V4 off. And I assert that that is not not in our careers. You know, there'll be a need for that. It'll get smaller and smaller over time, but you know, IPv4 as a service is, mark my words, that's going to be a thing. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Well, I mean, that's, let's maybe pivot and talk about, since since you guys have some really good sort of practical experience around using using v6 in the management plane, is there any lessons you, you feel like you really want to highlight to the audience of, of sort of like saying like, hey, don't don't make this horrible mistake that I made or or please do the, the following or please ask, you know, XYZ vendor for for something, uh, hey, GitHub, please add V6. <laughs> Lab it up. Lab it up before you buy the gear because all those caveats that we mentioned around V6, you're not going to find that on a data sheet. 
So, you know, talk to a vendor before you're buying stuff. And when you're labbing it, like really, really test it out. Really, really make sure it works. Um, and, you know, if you're doing RFPs or or however your purchasing process works, if you can, make, make payment contingent on, you know, this working. Because we all have heard vendors say, well, you know, nobody's asking for IPv6. And I don't believe that. And I think it's a circular reasoning because nobody's asking for it because you don't support it, right? But, you know, they all of a sudden kind of tend to change their tune a little bit when you can say, all right, well, this, you know, multi-million thing we're buying, now we're not going to pay for it until you meet all the terms of the contract. So, you know, th those are the kind of things that I would say you ought to be considering is make IPv6, not just IPv6 support, you know, big part of your RFP process or whatever you want to call it. But make sure IPv6 only is in there if that's what you're really doing. And make sure that you can hold your vendor's feet to the fire a little bit if you need to. You know, if they aren't supporting it right, make sure that you can have some leverage, you know, to make sure that they get it done right before, you know, the contract's closed out. Yeah, I think my advice would be three, three things, really. The first one is define exactly what you mean by v6 support and v6 only support write it down make sure that it is vetted with everyone technical and everyone non-technical that needs to vet it within your organization and that is and then you need to stick to it and that that is what you work with your you know work with the, your vendors and your service providers and whoever else you're buying services and and software and and you know bandwidth or whatever from have that defined, make sure that you write it down and make sure that it's agreed upon by all parties. And that, that sounds easy, but I think it'd be surprising how often it doesn't happen. The second thing is, you know, make sure it's socialized, you know, which kind of goes along with the first one, but make sure that it's really clear. Like this is the set expectations, I guess is really what I'm trying to say. When you set expectations early and often, you have a significantly higher margin of success. And the last thing is, this, for the most part, is not really a technical problem. It is in that you're kind of working on a technical thing, but there's a lot of social stuff that needs to happen to make sure that everyone understands and everyone's expectations are set and that communication paths stay open and that you're they're, everyone's working towards the same goal, you know, to do these things. And that isn't a technical problem. And a lot of technical people don't like hearing that, but, you know, communication is really key. And, you know, you can't do something like this without being able to do that. I can't agree with that enough. Like, the the technical part, sure, it is slightly difficult. There are some challenges like we've talked about, but, you know, the technical part is the easy part. <laughs> you got to get buy-in and, and, and acceptance, and that's that's a great point, Nick. Yeah, I, I agree with, with, with all of those. Those are really good points. All right, we're, we're going to pivot a little bit off, maybe not off topic, but it just so happens that Chris and Nick... Scott and myself are all in as co-authors on on two RFCs. <laughs> so, and and we wanted to. Uh, I sort of think one of them is is applicable for for the talking space about what we're talking about here around the management plane. And we have one RFC that talks about potentially trying to get new documentation uh, prefix space uh, for those that are trying to sort of document bigger networks than than 32s or more complex configurations. And then 
Also, another one that's that's trying to allocate lab prefix space and talking about potentially trying to get some prefix space specifically for lab use cases. And um, maybe we talk really quickly about that, about whether that's actually applicable to the management plane. Is there, do we think that's something that could actually be helpful in that area or, you know, what's some considerations and I'll let you guys sort of jump in if you have any thoughts around it that you want to share. If not, well, that's okay too. <laughs> I think Nick touched on one earlier, which is precedence values and de-precedence or de-preferenced, I guess, uh, source address selection. Ed, I know you know the RFC number off the top of your head. I don't, but, you know, when you are, <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a table to find in there. And this was something I didn't really think about much because, you know, if you're doing IP6 only, it's not incredibly, well, it is relevant, but there are certain addresses that are a lower precedence in this policy table than IPv4. And so if you're using those certain, ULA is one of them. If you're using those certain prefixes to do your labbing and you're testing dual stack stuff and maybe you're testing dual stack connectivity to your management network, mm -hmm. and you're going to be using IPv4 if you're using ULA for all that. Mm -hmm. And, because IPv4 is going to be chosen uh, over that IPv6 ULA address. Well, and, and what's really interesting, what I found out, because Nick just informed, informed me about this one, because finally figuring out how Linux actually can change and tweak some of the, uh, the RC6724 values. It, apparently, <laughs> from some of the config files, some of the, uh, some of the operating systems are still using 3484 for precedence values, but having 6724 for actual... Um, um, different characteristics of, of, of listings within the table. So it's a weird combination of the older RFC and the newer RFC. So you, we're going to get very different end host configuration behavior. I don't know if uh, th this is just some more complexity around, around uh, you know, V6 overall. And, and that's why I think a lab prefix space would actually be useful because it would not be deep preference, but it would be something that you would not anticipate leaking out to the public you know, sort of global route table for routing out on the on the public internet. It'd be something that everyone could use to be able to provide example lab configurations uh, over and over, which would help with management plane too. I think. Yeah, super useful for that. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And and you know, the the, the real win for the lab space is all the things that you guys just said, and you know, the the precedence thing is it was huge. That was a hard lesson learned for me. I couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. And then I think I actually was walking the dog and listening to one of these IPv6 podcasts. And I was like, ah, that's what it is. Because, you know, we, we as IPv6 practitioners and, and, you know, evangelists, we say, you know, you need to do it this way. If you're doing dual stack, one of the big differences is you can't, there's no more memorizing addresses, right? So you should be using DNS. But if you use DNS and you're using ULA space, you're never going to use v6 it's always going to default to v4 and that's a that's a big that's a big thing now having this lab space not depreferenced is a huge deal just because of that but i think the thing that's missed is that you know the majority and i'm going to go meta here a little bit the majority of networkers are working with you know in an enterprise space or you know a, a they're not working on service providers or very large geographic networks. And so it's not immediately obvious why having something larger than a slash 32 is useful because they're probably not working on merging two 
national scale service providers together and need to lab up how to do that. You can't, there's no good way to do that right now in a, in a controlled fashion, right? You know, that you can't, you have to air gap it essentially if you're going to do it because you're going to have to use GUA space. And so that is a very, I mean, that's, that solves a lot of problems for folks that operate big networks, like a lot of problems because labbing is critical in that space. And you have to lab up pretty much everything you're going to touch because if you, you know, the blast radius is gigantic, you know, it might be a continent, it might be, you know, a hemisphere. So being able to lab things up beforehand is really critical and not having a great way to do that in a safe, controlled environment has been a problem for a very long time. And mostly we've just tried, been trying to work around it. And having this lab space largely solves that all in one shot. Yeah, I think I think one of the other things that's really useful uh, concept-wise around it is is the fact that you can have a repeatable lab that everyone can use that they can deploy. So folks like cloud service providers, right, can then take a generic lab and just say, spin up a VPC, build it with this lab space, allow them to test and build whatever lab they want, and you're good with it because it doesn't matter because it's not supposed to be, you know, routed enough for that purpose, but you know it's all going to work properly and you know it's not deep-referenced to prefix space and, and it's going to sort of do the behavior you want and you can test V6 only and you can test whatever related components you want to be able to do in a safe space and then just discard the, the lab when you're done. And it's very reproducible that way. So I think that's a plus. But, you know, I don't that's know. That's a plus. And hang on. What, I want to go Inception on you here real quick. Okay. You can say, <laughs> I'm going to do these repeatable labs, but the space that we've, you know, that, we, that we've requested, that we've suggested here is big enough that you can programmatically allocate huge chunks of space that are unique. And then you can say, that lab is really cool over here. What happens if I join them together? And you can do that without overlapping space because it's it's that large so you you have a lot more opportunities for really testing and stretching your legs yeah and i think i think the other thing that's nice is it doesn't have the constraint that ula has around the randomization for for the for the prefix generation so we can have something more contiguous and and and, and work on things like actual address plans for large scale and, and route plans for large scale that maybe uh, are not possible with the ula ula or the existing documentation address prefix space either to me, the like the 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 things that stick out the most as to how this is valuable is, it's a space that's large enough for you to lab anything, and anything. <laughs> it's large enough for you to lab anything, and it acts the same way as the actual addresses you'll be using. You know, those are the two points to me that really stick out as this is really useful. We do not have something that does that right now. The closest thing we have is 2001 DBA colon slash 32, but that's a slash 32. There's organizations getting allocations much larger than that these days, and they need to be able to lab them. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much, you guys. That's that's. It's great to get some insight around some of that, and hopefully for, for the listeners, they might actually uh, want to dig into that. I know the current uh, ITF meeting is happening sometime soon, so if you if you're really interested and you want to follow along with some of that work, uh, the the drafts are up and available, and you can you can poke around and check it out and provide some feedback if you have have any comments around that. We'd love to hear them because uh, we're we're super interested in seeing if there's additional use cases beyond what we what we laid out. But unlike V6, we've run out of space for the podcast. So thanks to today's guest, uh, Chris and Nick. Uh, how can the audience follow you on the internet? You know, I'm on the Twitter and at Forwarding Plane. 
I occasionally blog at forwardingplane.net. And Chris and I have a little podcast, a little ragtag podcast called The Modem Show, where we try to get deep into the technical weeds. And also there's witty banter. So <laughs> that's fun. Great show, by the way, you guys. I, I enjoy listening to it. Thanks for that. Yeah, uh, I'm Chris Cummings. I am on the Twitters at uh, Cranky Netman. No, not at uh, Cranky Netman. It's at Cranky Netman. <laughs> um, I don't know. LinkedIn. I I have a really criminally neglected blog that uh, I'm going to get like the police called on me for. Uh, slash six four dot tech. That's an IPv6 thing, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Modem dot show. Like Nick mentioned, that's our little ragtag gang. And often hanging around various Slack channels, you'll find me on Packet Pushers uh, Slack channel quite often. Um, other other ones, there's a million of them. Yep. Cool, cool. Well, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz on Twitter too. Uh, we're at IPv6 Buzz. And uh, you can also hit up uh, each one of us. So uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers, any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz if you like the show. Please give us a rating on iTunes. Hopefully you're listening on Spotify too. Uh, and if you, you you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, Network Break, and oh yes, Modem, <laughs> modem Podcast too. Um, and all the other great technical content over at PackerPushers.net. Uh, so long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.